to The Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9, FM Caldwell, Boise. It's a little different for all of us this week. Um, I'm Jackie Tetler. I'm here with my co-host, Charlie Hunt, um, and we are recording remotely uh, for the first time since we are not actually in the studios. That's right. That's right. So you, you are here with me in spirit and actually over video chat, if not, uh, if not in person. <laughs> right. uh, we, certainly, we certainly miss the studio and our Radio Boise comrades, but uh, we must push on because, as we know, Jackie, there is... Not just a little bit of news, but uh, about as much news as we could possibly imagine. And we are so thankful for those at Radio Boise who are keeping us on the air, keeping things going. Um, And so we look forward to being back um, in the studio soon. You may have already had lots of discussion about the coronavirus, maybe too much (laughs) recently, but we're going to talk some more about it because we haven't, um, we weren't on the air live last week. And so we think it's important to kind of cover some of those key developments since we last discussed the coronavirus, which was several weeks ago. Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know, last time, last time we talked was on our March 5th show. That was three weeks ago. And at that time, we had uh, about 220 confirmed cases of coronavirus in the U.S., and none were confirmed in the state of Idaho. Uh, at the time we're recording this, which is around 5 p.m. on Wednesday the 25th, we are quickly approaching half a million cases uh, worldwide, about 65,000 of which are here in the U.S., and nearly 1,000 deaths uh, in the U.S., with, with much more expected in the days and weeks ahead. Obviously, this has grown in scope and impact. Uh, we wanted to talk a little bit, you know, first about the public health impact and then a little bit about the, the economics of it and what we can kind of expect in the, in the weeks and months and maybe even years ahead. Jackie, what's your sense of what's going on in sort of the public health sphere? You know, we see these numbers, you know, thousands of new cases each day, a lot of hospitalizations. Uh, where do you see us at uh, right now in terms of what's going on in public health? Yeah, I think for for many communities, response are, is still kind of starting, right? It's really getting underway. But we're starting to see more places, including here in Idaho, that have community transmission of cases. It's not just people coming in that have, were in other cities or other states, which is why we're starting to see more stay-at-home orders, right? Because it's now increasingly important for us not to be out just mingling with lots and lots of people, spreading it throughout the communities, trying to slow that um, transmission. I think a lot there's been a lot of discussion about flattening of the curve and how we try to spread it out so that we're not all sick um, at the same time. Yeah, I think this is a this is a concern that I think a lot of folks tried to get across at the beginning, but that was very tough to do. Um, not necessarily because people weren't paying attention, but because because the sort of tangible impacts and the low numbers, like I was just saying, we only had a couple of hundred cases, and that doesn't sound like a lot. And so the idea of spreading, you know, taking drastic action sooner and flattening out that curve, spreading these cases out so that they don't overload the public health care system, you know, wasn't something that was on a lot of average Americans' radar. Uh, but I think you're right. We're starting to... Even here in Idaho, as we'll talk about later with the stay-at-home order, um, we're starting to see some more drastic actions. And I think part of that is because we've seen, particularly in New York City more than anywhere else, though there have been some other areas as well that are really concerning, we've started to see that 
uh, the, the consequences of not flattening the curve. We're so, we are starting to see some of that overloading of healthcare system capacity in a lot of, uh, in a lot of the hospitals in New York City. So I think that is, is a pretty concerning part as well, yeah. For sure. You know, more of us now know someone who may be sick or are concerned they have coronavirus. So it's becoming more personal for us as well, right? As it spreads throughout the country and communities, I think there's increasing concern for all of us that someone we know or someone or family member may 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 come down with the illness. And so that's also, I think, raising fears from what it was a few weeks ago where it the, the cases were so scattered. Yeah, and I think we also start to see kind of a turning point where whether it's whether it's either close loved ones or uh, you know very public people, kind of, if the, if there was an inflection point for all of this in terms of where this got onto the public's radar, it was when uh, you know some a few famous basketball players and Tom Hanks and his wife got the coronavirus. Like, okay, this is really happening to people, and I know it, it's it's kind of trite to talk about, but that is when a lot of people started paying attention. Um, and, and, you know, we're seeing a lot of high profile, you know, politicians and public health folks contracting the virus as well. And um, as well as some of our, our members of Congress, uh, Rand Paul uh, uh, tested positive very recently. And so I think that's when sort of people are, you know, more paying attention. And so what about so, you know, the public health impact that's ongoing? Uh, we feel like this has been going on for a while, but it's sort of in a lot of ways, maybe just ramping up, unfortunately. And so we'll have more to say about that in the weeks ahead. What about the economics of all of this? I mean, we've we've seen uh, the stock market tumbling all around back and forth over the past couple of weeks, a lot of really big losses there. Where do you sort of see the economic impacts the most, uh, you know, either so far and then sort of where we are yet to come? Yeah, I think the economic impacts are starting to really be felt as well, right? And so we have people not working, we have people getting laid off as, you know, restaurants or stores or, you know, all those types of industries are laying people off. The tourism's really down. So, like, key industries in some areas are, you know, they're laying people off, and so people are not bringing in an income. And so you have, in addition to this desire for people to stay home to try to slow the, the virus, you also have the economic impacts of that approach, right? And so, I think that's why the stimulus package, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, and Congress has gotten some bipartisan support because people really need help. Um, and it's not just one small segment of the U.S. I mean, unemployment is rapidly rising. Right, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's sort of the online conversation about coronavirus, which is helpful in a lot of ways. And, and in a lot of ways, we can we can trash Twitter quite a bit, but frankly, there were a lot of folks on there who were sort of sounding the alarm much earlier, and that's great. But I do think there can be a kind of a blindness to the economic impacts for especially service workers or, or folks who, even if they do keep their job and are considered, you know, essential personnel, they have to go to work. And yes, they're getting paid, but they're also really risking exposing themselves. And so it can feel a lot now sort of like a no-win situation, I think. Definitely. And we've also got this rising need for medical equipment that we do not have. And so you, we're also seeing economic impacts where Ford, for example, announced that they're going to shift over and, and, and start producing some medical equipment like masks. You've got 
the Trump administration asking some other businesses to also consider similar shifts in production. So not only are you having, you know, people not working, you also are having some shift in our industries and trying to address real needs we have ongoing. Yeah, yeah, and th- those needs are are unfortunately going to be ongoing, and we'll be we'll be keeping an eye on it. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. We've been a lot of doom and gloom. Now we're going to talk about some possible solutions coming up next here on the Big Tent. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Big Tent on Radio Boise. We're discussing uh, the coronavirus. In in the segment, we're going to talk a little bit about responses or efforts to address or or help um, the situation. So Charlie, I know Congress has been working on a stimulus package to try to provide resources and help help people out. Um, what's What are some of the things included in that stimulus package? So there's a lot in here. Uh, you know, what, the one thing that everyone can agree on with this bill is that it's really enormous. Uh, it's the biggest stimulus package basically in American history, uh, far surpassing even what, what Congress passed uh, back in 2009 following uh, the, the financial crisis of the previous year. So there are a few key elements to this. One is this uh, idea of direct payments to individuals. This is an idea that, you know, s- some folks have been talking about for quite a while as kind of a, you know, an ongoing policy idea. This, uh, our listeners may remember this. Something Andrew Yang. Part, yes, big part right. of uh, Andrew Yang's uh, c- campaign promises and, and, He's been taking probably some appropriate credit for for some of these ideas, but now it's being put forward as sort of this um, this sort of emergency measure. And so, what under the plan as it's being negotiated, which by the way it has not been finalized yet, so this may change. But uh, single Americans would receive uh, twelve hundred dollars, married couples would get twenty four hundred, and parents would get an additional five hundred dollars for each child under the age of seventeen. And then these payments would uh, phase out for individuals with um, incomes over seventy-five thousand, and those uh, making more than a hundred thousand wouldn't qualify. So that's the direct payment plan, uh, and that's just a one-time payment. So a lot of other countries have uh, have done. So, for example, Canada, I believe, did a similar uh, direct payment system, but had it for. I think three or four months, um, and that was something that a lot of Democrats wanted, but but Republicans uh, uh, were not in favor of. A few other portions here, so uh, federal student loan payments have been uh, suspended. So uh, especially for our students out there who might be listening, you you might be happy to hear that. Another important component of this is this huge boost for unemployment benefits. So as as you were talking about in the previous segment, Jackie, a lot of folks are going to be out of work. Uh, and so, you know, this is essentially going to give, you know, the unemployed an extra $600 a week for four months uh, on top of whatever state benefits they might be getting in terms of unemployment. So this is basically just, you know, in a lot of ways, a huge expansion of unemployment benefits. And that's on top of the direct payments I just mentioned as well. So the direct payments will help those that may not qualify for unemployment or who are not technically unemployed, correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, as we were just talking about, the, the unemployment piece of this is going to be one of, if not the biggest part of the, the economic impacts that we've been talking about. But even if you are able to work from home, uh, there are going to be all kinds of other downstream economic effects, uh, even even for folks who can continue to work or continue to work part time. So, for example, you know, a, a lot of my friends who are able to work from home, they're, they're able to do so. But, 
the the companies they work for are expecting such huge losses that they've basically cut everyone's salary by a certain amount. And so the idea here is that that these direct payments would would help those folks as well. And potentially help people go out and spend it in their local community, help benefit restaurants or, you know, other other types of local businesses that are small businesses are struggling a lot. So exactly. Yeah. And I mean, you know, one part of the conversation that's going to have to happen at some point, depending on, you know, when this is over or starts to starts to wind down, hopefully sooner rather than later is you know, how do we sort of restart the economy from there? And, and, and hopefully some of those direct payments can help people, you know, continue to patronize local businesses. And so a, a couple of other uh, items that are that are in here uh, is this is $500 billion in lending. So this is this is direct lending from the Treasury Department in uh, loans, loan guarantees and investments. And a lot of these are targeted to specific industries. So you mentioned earlier the airline industry, uh, including sort of cargo air carriers and for other businesses that work in airline and national security areas. They're going to get a a big chunk of this money and loans for a bunch of small to medium sized businesses. A lot of lending that's going to be happening, which has been particularly pushed for since the actions the Fed took uh, last week to essentially lower interest rates to zero. So if this scale of lending is going to be happening, now would be the time to do it. And so I think uh, I think that's part of their thinking there to, to help businesses like we were just talking about. Great. Yeah, I think it will be very interesting to see if they can get this hammered out in the next day or two, get it passed, which getting it passed would be a pretty momentous thing because our our Congress and president haven't been incredibly successful legislative, passing legislation, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, and all indications are that there is a lot of bipartisan support for this package. And so, you know, we'll see if that sticks. There are some holdouts and uh, you know, they haven't passed it as of yet, but they seem to have there. This was sort of textbook legislative agreement between Democrats in Congress, Republicans in Congress and the executive branch. In this case, it was uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who was doing a lot of the, the negotiation for the Trump administration. But as we as we know, it's not just the, the federal side. There have been a lot of state actions as well. Jackie, what have what have the states been been doing? They've been taking some pretty drastic actions, uh, including right here in Idaho, am I right? Right, and it's been really interesting to see the variation across states and responses, in that we had some governors very early on declaring state, state of emergencies to uh, you know, open up more resources, um, allow states to kind of waive regulations or licensing that may make response difficult um, to the coronavirus. So some states like Washington and California, which had some early cases really early on, were using a you know state of emergencies to address the situation. At this point, all 50 states have declared state of emergencies. Though interesting within states, some local governments have really kind of been the, the leaders on addressing or responding to the coronavirus and issuing stay-at-home orders with states later following, for which is what happened in Idaho where you had cities like Boise um, starting to close um, schools, playgrounds, restaurants, 
And today, um, on Wednesday, Governor Little issued a stay-at-home order for the entire state. Right. So, you know, we've seen we've seen this in a number of other states uh, before today, particularly in some of the larger, more populated states or states that have been more heavily affected by this. You know, we saw New York and Illinois and California and Washington and some of those other states doing this. For our listeners, what do people need to know about this stay-at-home order what's in there what what can people do what what can't they do according to uh, the governor's statement this morning yeah i think the big thing is just stay at home if you can if you can work from home if you don't need to be out stay at home there are essential businesses or facilities that need to be open healthcare facilities grocery stores banks, childcare. So there's some of those things that will remain open, not affected. But for citizens that can stay home, they should stay home, especially if you're older, if you're over 65, you know, avoid um, interacting with other people. Additionally, at this time, no no gatherings, um, you know, with anyone outside of your household that's not essential. So you shouldn't be going to just hang out with friends unless, you know, like at, at, at this point. Outdoor activities, okay. If you're on your own, staying at least six feet away from other people, you can still go out and exercise, but no gyms, <laughs> um, none of those types of things. Um, we can still go to the grocery store if needed, but again, try to minimize our activity outside the household as much as possible. Wow, it's a pretty it's a pretty drastic step. I mean, I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, what we've seen in other states, right, where, you know, we don't we we still have comparatively a pretty low number of total cases in the state, but the testing still isn't where we want to be, and so I it it seems to me, right, like this is sort of an effort to kind of get ahead of the problem as much as possible so that especially some of our some of our mid-sized or larger cities don't end up end up in a situation with overcapacity in the healthcare system right like we saw in New York exactly I think some of the struggles in Blaine County um, with you know having limited health care limited ICU beds immediately um, in some of those smaller cities was a challenge and once community tra- transmission started to appear in other places in Idaho I think that really kind of helped motivate the state to take this action. And the stay-at-home order will remain in effect at least 21 days, at which time it will then be reassessed. Okay, well, we, re- we will reassess it at that time as well. Uh, but for now, we're going to take a short break, uh, and then we're going to come back and talk about the effects of, of COVID-19 on, on our elections. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Big Tent here on Radio Boise. We're talking all things COVID-19, talk some problems, talk some solutions. Now, since since Jackie and I are doing the show this week, we get to be selfish and talk about elections since we love them so much. And we want them to be uh, protected and we want them to go on. And, uh, you know, Jackie, this this whole situation creates a lot of problems for elections uh, when, you know, people are a lot of times gathering at polling places, going out campaigning. There are a lot of ways in which this affects our elections and our campaigns. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, what we're seeing kind of on the national level, how this has affected uh, our elections, particularly in an election year, and, and what we might wanna, might wanna be doing about it in the States? <laughs> Some great questions. We've seen kind of mixed responses so far, like Ohio, the night before the presidential primary postponed it while other states went forward on on what I guess was that last week 
So we're already seeing some variations across states, but there is a real concern when you think about like poll workers, a large majority of them are over 60. So it's a very vulnerable population. So you don't really want them out there organizing um, and working at the polls. And you don't really want people going to spread at the same time. It's still important to be able to vote and, and participate um, in elections. So now a lot of states are trying to figure out what is their response going to be. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to point that out. I, I, you know, I've 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 read and heard a lot of people saying in my life, you know, why are we still trying to have elections right now? Why are we still trying to have these primary elections? Why don't we just put them off? Uh, and I think it's important to note that part of the reason we don't want to put them off is because we don't know how long this is going to last. And uh, and it's the situation is changing every day. And uh, it, it seems pretty important to sort of keep life going in certain respects to the extent that we can as much as possible. And that, you know, it it you know, this is not not to get all doomsday on us, but, you know, this is how things can fall apart in a democracy when you start declaring something like an election as non-essential, especially when there are some some ways uh, to get around it. What, what are some ways that states have looked at in terms of how to still hold these elections with even while some of these states are having these kind of shelter in place orders? Sure. Well, so far, like I mentioned, some states have just postponed them. But some states are starting to look at their options, especially if they have primary elections, state primary elections coming up in like May. For example, Idaho has state primary elections in May. Idaho has pretty permissive absentee um, voting. And so we can request an absentee ballot with no excuse needed. And one thing that Idaho Secretary of State has done is allowed for online requests for absentee ballots. So basically, they're working on kind of turning it into a vote by mail type election, if needed, encouraging everyone to request an absentee ballot. If we're able to hold an election and you haven't filled out the absentee ballot, you can go to the ballot box, but you will have that absentee ballot if you you need to use it. Right. And and there's and that is a little different, too, right, from sort of true vote by mail, where where states uh, like Oregon, right, has a vote-by-mail system where they mail you your ballot. It is all done that way. There are no polling places. It is sort of all done, basically made as easy as humanly possible uh, in in order for voters to sort of normalize that way of doing it and, and getting your ballots back, right? Exactly. And I, I'm sure there are some states figuring out whether or not um, – or how easy it would be to switch to a vote by mail system for upcoming primaries, potentially as well the November election if needed. Some states don't even have a very permissive absentee ballot um, process. They only allow it with like excuses. So some states may also be figuring out whether they can temporarily change that and make no excuse absentee ballots possible. Charlie, are there any potential concerns with this type of switch in how elections are administered? So there, there are a couple that we would sort of normally take into consideration, and they, and you know, I'll describe them, but they also may still be outweighed by sort of the enormity of what's going on, specifically the public health crisis. But, but there are a couple of potential problems. Um, you know, one is as we sort of alluded to earlier, sort of 
getting this normalized in, in people's systems. People, for years, for as long as any of us can remember, we when we think of voting, we think of going to the polls. We think of going and punching the ballot and getting registered and getting our sticker. And, and there that is there is a huge civic component to that. And so getting people adjusted to the process of having to go out of their way, especially if it's not a true vote-by-mail system, to actually go online uh, or, or send in the mail to sort of get their mail ballot. And so turnout is is possibly going to be a problem. I mean, I think I have difficulty seeing how this doesn't result in a lower turnout uh, set of elections in some way, shape, or form. You know, another another concern is has to do with, uh, with secrecy. So, you know, this isn't necessarily a, a hugely prominent concern, but it's one political scientists talk about a bit where you know, particularly for uh, for women voters, a lot of in a lot of cases, the sort of uh, you know pressure, the sort of you know husband looking over the shoulder and you know ma- and pressuring to to vote a certain way. There can be kind of family pressures or peer pressures, especially if you're all filling it out at the same time. Um, and uh, you know that that is a real concern, particularly if it might change someone's vote. I mean, part of why we like going to the polling place is you get that little booth and you go in, and it's totally a secret. Um, and maybe the ballot becomes a little bit less secret if you're sort of filling it out with your with your family. But I know Charlie, you've been a pretty early proponent of thinking about vote by mail, especially for the November election once cases of COVID-19 started to rise. And so how do how do we try to transition to vote by mail in an election year? There are a couple of potential problems here. One is that, at least in terms of sort of uh, elites and elected representatives, Democrats tend to be far more supportive of vote by mail and other you know voter registration measures like that than Republicans. And so there's the fear that if, for example, Democrats advocate too heavily for something like this, then it'll become a partisan issue and there will be sort of accusations of, of illegitimacy or trying to steal the election or something like that. And I think what is really important is that there are sort of high profile people on both sides that end up pushing something like this uh, so that it becomes normalized in people's minds so that we get we have a chance to try it out over these primary elections over the course of a few months, especially in some of these larger states that aren't used to something like this, uh, pointing to uh, pointing to situations like Oregon, where they've had this for a number of years now, and it's uh, and to my knowledge has has gone off relatively without a hitch. Uh, that there are not these huge instances of voter fraud. Um, and so, you know, this would be a, a really important way to maintain some kind of normal life uh, going forward, especially if this ends up stretching well into the summer. Even if the you know number of cases or the public health crisis recedes, people's economic situations are going to continue to be really fragile for a number of months and years going forward from this, uh, including in November, where we have a really big general election. And so I think making, to me, making it as easy for people as possible is one really important sort of strategy for, you know, fighting this virus and, and keeping things as as normal as possible and ensuring sort of any smooth transitions of power or sort of maintaining power that, that we're going to have. One other really important thing here is that the nature of this crisis and the virus makes people feel really powerless. They don't understand it. They don't know what's going to happen next. Things are changing really fast. And their vote is something that 
they can't control and that it is there in a lot of for a lot of people their one way of uh, exercising their voice so I hope people are able to do that uh, in Idaho and beyond in the coming months great point well we're so glad that you joined us today we hope you're all staying safe and healthy and that we will I'll be back to a somewhat normal situation before way too long. But in the meantime, let's do our best to try to flatten that curve. Well, we'll be back again next week. Um, uh, Take care.